You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. You can learn more at cbmw.org. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I am the President of CBMW. This is the first episode in a new series we are starting on the podcast, where we're going to be walking through the Nashville Statement on Biblical Sexuality. Denny, tell us about the Nashville Statement. Yeah, so back in 2017, CBMW convened a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, in conjunction with the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, hosted us. And we had about 80 leaders and um, Christian leaders and scholars come to Nashville and complete a statement on biblical sexuality. It addresses homosexuality, it addresses transgenderism, and it talks about what the definition of marriage is, and it tries to put all of this in a biblical framework. And the whole goal of it was to give language, confessional language, to churches and ministries that were looking for something to be a standard for their own uh, organization. And since then, a lot of people have adopted this as a kind of a confessional standard, which was what our goal was all along. What was it about 2017 that you felt was the moment for this statement? Everybody remembers back in 2015 with the Supreme Court decision, Obergefell, that gay marriage sort of became the law of the land at that time. Not sort of, it did become the law of the land at that time. But what happened after that was you you saw the activist class kind of turn the page and move from the L, G, and the B to the T. And it was like they had, uh, there was a new uh, cultural consensus emerging, was affirming gay marriage, and now they were moving on to to transgenderism. What year was Bruce Jenner on the cover of Time magazine? That was 2015. Yeah, so, so you had Obergefell. Right before that, the Bruce Jenner thing happened, but then you started to see the the transgender explosion, you know, happening really right after 2015. So we just had these twin challenges facing the church and a lot of Christians, ministries, churches, especially were on their heels. And there's a lot of them are still on their heels, not because they've never thought about manhood and womanhood, but they'd never had to think about, you know, a movement that was coming after children, for example, you know, telling them, okay, yeah, maybe you were born a boy, but that's not what you really are. Maybe you were born a girl and that's not what you really are. And so we felt the need that we wanted to try to connect the Bible's teaching to the realities of what we are as male and female and to say it in ways that would be useful to people and that could define their own ministries and fellowships. Here we are at the beginning of 2023, so five years on plus uh, from the release of the National Statement. In what ways do you feel like this statement has been vindicated uh, in church life and just public life in general? Well, I think its vindication is totally rises or falls on whether or not it matches what the Bible says. So from the very beginning, I've always viewed it as a, a biblical statement of what it means to be created as a male or female in his image, and then all the implications that that has for so-called gender identity, sexuality, and marriage. So you know, for me, whether or not the rest of the culture recognizes anything about this is true. If it matches up with the Bible, it's it's true. Having said that, I do think that we've found a lot of resonance with this over the last five years with a lot of Christians. So there have been countless, I don't know how to even count or tabulate all the churches that have adopted this as a confessional standard. Our church did 
um, adopted Nashville um, as a the Nashville statement as a confessional standard just not long ago. And it wasn't because we didn't have any previously published beliefs on this. We did. We just needed some more specificity uh, going forward. That's what we were looking for. And there are so many churches that I hear from that have done this. There's also a ton of Christian institutions. We've had uh, seminaries, uh, Christian colleges, uh, state Baptist conventions, you know, who have in one way or another affirmed Nashville, used it. Southern Baptist Convention uh, sometime back passed a, 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 a resolution on transgender that has language from the Nashville statement uh, included in it. The PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, adopted Nashville as a, a recommendation for uh, their discipleship of their own people, kind of a stopgap measure that they needed in some of their own internal controversies in, in, in their denomination. So we've just seen a lot of Christians use this as a resource to help define for their own ministries what the Bible teaches about these things. I think that's an important point. You think of the great historic confessions of the faith, Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, uh, all the way up to Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Uh, they don't mention the word transgender in those confessions of faith. So in many ways, we're in the 21st century facing new questions, uh, but applying those old truths to those new questions. Um, and so just like you said, the Nashville Statement being a supplemental tool uh, to the church's confession, um, I think in many ways, like you said, has been vindicated. Yeah, no question. So I'm holding a the Nashville Statement uh, in my hand, a copy of it, and under the title, there's this verse, Psalm 100, verse 3. It says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Denny, why did you think that this was uh, an important tone setter uh, for the statement? Well, it really, I think, addresses the spirit of the age because you know the, the age that we now live in is a time when people think, you know, I am whatever I think myself to be. So if I perceive, no matter what my bodily realities are, so even if I have a, if if I'm a male human being and I feel attractions towards another male human being, well, then that's who I am and my sexual desires define me and therefore I would identify as gay or or, uh, lesbian or whatever and I would live that out because that's that's who I am. Or when you think about the, the issue of gender identity, I mean, there are people today who are saying, well, you know, I know my body says male or says female, but I feel myself to be something different from what my body says. Maybe uh, it's a transgender experience or a non-binary, but people's, basically their feelings are, they're just saying that that that's defining who they are. And yet the, the biblical text says, well, wait, know that the Lord himself is God. It's he who has made us and not we ourselves. What, what that means fundamentally is that because God is the creator and has his, his fingerprints are over, are on every cell of our bodies, his design, it defi- that is what defines who we are. So we don't define who we are. God does. That is the direct entailment of God being creator. And what you're seeing in a lot of contemporary notions about what it means to be a human being today it's just a rejection of God as creator. And so we want to just assert right up front that it's it's not, we don't construct our own human nature. That was something that's a given. It's a gift from the Lord. 
And it's our job as his image bearers to discover what he made us to be and then to live into that reality. So almost questions of identity and where does identity come from? I know we're going to get to that question in future episodes, uh, even the, that term identity, whether it's helpful or not. Um, but yeah, that's very, very uh, good. So as I mentioned, we're going to be going to uh, walk through the Nashville Statement in the coming weeks and months uh, in these different episodes. But I thought we'd start out this episode uh, just reading the preamble, so kind of setting the table for what we thought, uh, you know, Denny, you were very instrumental in the instigation of the Nashville Statement, you know, primary author, et cetera. Um, so why kind of feeling this, uh, the, the cultural moment we were in, why this statement was necessary? I think the preamble does a good job as to, to setting, you know, that question up. So would you would you read that? For sure, us? absolutely. I think a, yeah, best thing to do just be for us to read it, and then we can kind of discuss it. Uh, the preamble to the Nashville statement precedes fourteen different articles. I'm just going to read you uh, the preamble, though. It says, "Evangelical Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in a period of historic transition, as Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian. It has embarked upon a massive revision of what it means to be a human being." By and large, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for His glory and that His good purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. It's common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's beautiful plan, but is rather an expression of an individual's autonomous preferences. The pathway to full and lasting joy through God's good design for his creatures is thus replaced by the path of short-sighted alternatives that, sooner or later, ruin human life and dishonor God. I'm going to stop you there, Denny. Um, I think it's fascinating to think about our our moment in church history uh, along theological terms. So you think of the first centuries, the, the questions pressing in on the church were, uh, Trinitarian, Christological. Uh, you think of the era of the Reformation, the questions pressing on the church were soteriolo- soteriological. Um, and I just can't help but think about our age, you know, that right there in the preamble, what it means to be a human being. The questions facing us today, it seems by and large to be anthropological. Can you expand on that a little bit? No, absolutely. We're, we're having disputes today about what it means to be a human being. And there's a vast difference between those who view human nature as having inherent dignity and worth because of being created in the image of God and those who don't believe that we're created in the image of God and that we're, we're basically, we're all existentialists now. Existence precedes essence. We sort of forge and self-construct who we are as human beings, even if that means, um, you know, changing our bodily nature through surgery or hormone therapies or whatever. Um, There's just a vast difference there. And that's this, that's the time that we live in. And it's, I would argue, probably the preeminent uh, conflict that the church is experiencing with the world at large right now. We recently renamed our, our academic journal at CBMW Icon, a journal for biblical anthropology. You know, CBMW was founded uh, around questions back in the 80s, 1980s, uh, around questions of manhood and womanhood. Uh, and here we are today facing questions of what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female, what it means to be a human being. Uh, so in many ways, kind of drilling down on that question 
And again, we'll get to this later, but the, the relations between uh, manhood, womanhood, maleness, femaleness, and then dignity and worth and, uh, and God-createdness, I think those are all questions that face the church. And, and in a very pointed way, anthropologically speaking, uh, we need to have answers. Yeah, totally agree. Now, I'm going to go on here with the preamble. Um, the, the second paragraph of the preamble says, this secular, spirit, this secular spirit of our age presents a great challenge to the Christian church. Will the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lose her biblical conviction, clarity, and courage, and blend into the spirit of our age? Or will she hold fast to the word of life, draw courage from Jesus, and unashamedly proclaim his way as the way of life? Will she maintain her clear countercultural witness to a world that seems so bent on ruin? So a string of rhetorical questions. Um, obviously, the answer to all of those uh, on the other side of fidelity is yes, because Christ holds his church. But uh, how many churches have we seen, even in the last five years since the Nashville Statement um, has been released, have been, not been able to answer these questions in the affirmative? Yeah, I think I think that this is a real challenge for Christian ministries and certainly for churches because they're having to decide um, whether or not they're going to give up the social capital required to stand on these truths. Now, it's it's not a conflict every day at the door of every church, but it increasingly is. Even if you try to stay out of the fray, the conflict uh, you know will eventually come your way. I'm thinking about just this week uh, the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, um, they were in the news uh, last week and this week because their church adopted their own statement on sexuality. It's very short, just a two or three sentences long, but it defined marriage according to the Bible, and it defines what it means to be male or female according to the Bible. They did this back in, I don't know, almost three three months ago, but just recently some reporters got hold of it, and they've just been in the crosshairs of local media and activists mis, uh, misportraying what the statement says, um, totally distorting what the church is and what they were trying to do by it. All they were trying to do was say, look, if we're going to be members here, we're all going to hold to a biblical view of sexuality and gender. But they've portrayed it as, no, you're, you're not welcoming to everyone. People can't come into your church service unless they have all the right beliefs. None of that was true. Um, they are just being faithful Christians. But it's an example of the crucible that a ministry or a church can get in very quickly when um, you know folks from the surrounding community just get at odds with, with what the teaching is. And so it's, it's actually turned out to be a great platform for witness for that church because they've taken the moment as an opportunity to speak to their community and to bear witness, not to just what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood, but more importantly, to talk about what the Bible says about the gospel and what it means to be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus because of his death and resurrection on the cross. So, you know, we all have a lot on our plates. There are a lot of, a lot of things going on in churches and ministries, but we've got to be able to be ready to answer whenever critics come to challenge what the faith says. I was following that story really closely, uh, First Baptist Church of Jacksonville. You read the, the media reports, and they're inflammatory, they're overblown. You read the actual statement, <clears throat> which is only a paragraph, a couple sentences, and you think, this is what the church has believed for 2,000 plus years. Um, can you speak to that? The, the, 
the idea that we're not talking about theological innovation here. We're just talking about theological re-articulation, just saying the same thing, confessing the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. And when you read the Nashville Statement, you know, go back five years, read the, the media reports around the Nashville Statement, they were so inflammatory. Um, it was like, you know, we had uh, come up with some new heresy or something that, that, was, uh, that was being passed around. But you read the statement, and this is what the church has always believed. Why is there that kind of mismatch between just saying what believers have always, you know, believed and, and confessed and how the church is now, or how the world really is, is now receiving the church's confession? Yeah, you know, statements like the Nashville Statement or even like First Jackson's First Jacksonville's statement, these are not new doctrines. These are not new teachings. What it is is it's the ancient faith drawn from the Bible applied to new challenges. That's what it is. So the challenges are new, and so you have to have a fresh articulation to meet those challenges. But the teaching itself is as ancient as Christianity. So what we're saying here, what our aim in the Nashville statement was really just to reach back into the Scripture and to articulate what the scripture says it means about being male and female and what it means to be created in his image as male and female. That's what all we're trying to do in any faithful Christian ministry. That's what they're going to be trying to do is to apply the ancient faith to the current challenges in a way that's winsome and truthful and that will engage uh, everyone who sees or hears it. I think that's exactly what the, ne the next paragraph in the preamble gets to. Can I read that for yeah, us? Yeah, sure. It says, We are persuaded that faithfulness in our generation means declaring once again the true story of the world and of our place in it. So not innovation here, just redeclaration, particularly as male and female. Christian scripture teaches that there is but one God who alone is creator and Lord of all. To him alone, every person owes glad-hearted thanksgiving, heartfelt praise, and total allegiance. This is the path not only of glorifying God, but of knowing ourselves. To forget our Creator is to forget who we are, for He made us for Himself. We cannot know ourselves truly without truly knowing Him who made us. We did not make ourselves. We are not our own. Our true identity as male and female persons is given by God. It is not only foolish but hopeless to try to make ourselves what God did not create us to be. Yeah, just there's an echo in there. Of First Corinthians six, you know, where Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and there were a group of men in that congregation who were being sexually immoral and going and visiting prostitutes, and they were justifying it, saying that they had a right to do this. All things are lawful for me, and saying that this is what their bodies were designed for. So they're just going to go go do this. And Paul ends up coming to them and saying, "Listen, do you not know that you were bought with a price?" Um, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God with your body, which was just Paul's way of saying to the Corinthians who were justifying sexual immorality, listen, you don't own you. God owns you. God made you, and now through Jesus, he saved you, which means he defines the terms of your existence. That's true whether you acknowledge it or not, but especially Christians have to acknowledge that and declare that and live our lives in conformity with that. Yeah, I think that's an important point, um, even stated here in the preamble, that questions of, of who we are as male and female, who, who we are as human beings, they are actually theological questions. To get these questions wrong um, would be to, to get God himself and his, his creation, his revelation wrong. 
I think Calvin in his institute, uh, institutes when he begins at the beginning, um, he asked that question, what, what is, where does knowledge begin? Does it begin with knowing ourselves and then knowing God or knowing God and then ourselves? And he kind of gets to the place where it's sort of both. We, we can only know ourselves by rightly knowing God and we can only know God by rightly knowing ourselves. And I think that that's part of what we're trying to do here with the National Statement is equ- equip the church uh, to look again to the Bible to see who God created us to be so that we might rightly know him. The last paragraph in the preamble says this, We believe that God's design for his creation and his way of salvation serve to bring him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest good. God's good plan provides us with the greatest freedom. Jesus said that he came that we might have life and have it in overflowing measure. He is for us and not against us. Therefore, in the hope of serving Christ's church and witnessing publicly to the good purposes of God for human sexuality revealed in Christian scripture, we offer the following affirmations and denials. And we'll get into the affirmations and denials in a, a later podcast, but the, the whole point of, of this final paragraph is just to say, listen, God doesn't give us his revelation or his design to hurt us, but to help us. He is he has created the world as he has. He's created male and female as a gift to us. Our our gender, our maleness or femaleness is a gift from God to be received and enjoyed. And it only ultimately um, is harmful to us when we ignore that and sort of kick against the goads and you know go against the design of his creation. So, you know, a lot of times in our culture, the idea is you know, if you really love somebody, you're just going to affirm them. And so the, the definition of love today is just uncondi- unconditional affirmation. That's not what the Bible says. Um, the, the Bible says that, that love always rejoices in the truth, 1 Corinthians 13. Love rejoices in the truth. So it, it's possible for us to speak the truth in love. And that's what the Nashville Statement is, is trying to do. And that's what we're going to be unfolding over the coming weeks. God's revelation, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That's what we're trying to point to, God's word being help uh, as we go in the world that God made. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.